Well, it's a delight to be with you this morning. I have uh, followed the progress of your church for a number of years, and it's great to be here in your new sanctuary to worship alongside of you. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be at a number of different places in the Scripture this morning, but we will begin here. As a church, we have just gone through what historically has been a time of reflection and anticipation as we uh, lead up to this event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We mark it on Easter Day and celebrate that as a day when new life broke into this world, where the kingdom of God uh, came crashing in and what was expected to happen at the end of history now happened at the middle. And Christ's kingdom is advancing in some incredibly surprising ways. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But we've also gone through a season that is also known by other people as March Madness. A time when people, sports fans especially, get excited. Uh, even if you're not a sports fan, sometimes you get drawn into all the hype as 64 basketball teams come together. And we're especially excited about this down in Aggieland because our Aggies finally have a basketball team. And they were doing well. They got eliminated, I think, the first round. But it was pretty exciting nevertheless. But whether you're a basketball fan or not, uh, I came across what has to be the best sports story of the year. Uh, Some of you may have heard of this. A young man in high school by the name of Jason McElwain uh, was a a devotee of basketball. He loved it so much. And as a child, he was diagnosed with autism and tried his best to always fit in. And he went out for the JV team in high school, but he was short, five foot six, and didn't make the cut, but he loved basketball and he wanted to be connected to his school in this uh, way. So he, he signed up to be the manager of the basketball team. And in three years in high school, he only missed one game of his school. He would get there before practice, sit everything up. He would stay there long after practice to make sure everything was cleaned up. He was there on the sidelines, always cheering for his team. Well, during his senior year, his coach approached him and said, You know what, Jason? I want you to dress up for this game. I'm not going to promise you can get in, but if we're at a position at the end of the game where we have the advantage, uh, I'm going to stick you in. Now, I'm not promising anything. Do you understand that? He said yes. And so the, the word got out in the student body that Jason is suiting up for this game. And all the people in the high school just started going crazy in anticipation. They made pictures of his face and stuck it on popsicle sticks. And they went to the game cheering and chanting his name. And what is interesting, I went to the ESPN homepage and downloaded this video because I heard about this. Uh, four minutes left in the game, the coach looked down to Jason and said, Jason, we want you to come in. And the crowd just went crazy. The anticipation electricity was amazing. And what is interesting, he, he went out there on the court. He wasn't exactly sure where to stand, but uh, his teammate passed him the ball. And from a three-point range on the side, he put up the shot. And it was a complete air ball. Everyone gasped. Their hearts sunk. My heart sunk as I watched it on the video. But nevertheless, the team went down the court and back down. They passed the ball to him again. He put up another three-point shot. And this time it was nothing but net. And what was fun to watch was not just him being totally excited about this, but the crowd going crazy and his teammates standing there. And and just, just, they couldn't stand themselves. They were so excited about what was going on. Would you know this? In four minutes... Jason went 7 for 13, 6 of 10 for the three-point line. He became the team's leading scorer with 20 points. 
And in the last shot of the game, he put up what was an NBA three-point shot. It went in, nothing but net. And the crowd stormed the court. His teammates went and picked him up and carried him off the court. And it was one of the most amazing stories I had ever seen. And I was watching this on the, video, on the computer screen. And, and as this was going on, I have tears streaming down my face. I'm like, this is weird. It's not like a man thing to do when you're watching sports. <laughs> And it was a, such a great story, I just had to share it with my kids. And so I went out of the room, I pulled them in. I'm like, kids, you've got to see this. So I replayed the video for them, and my, my tears started up again. And they're like, Dad, why are you crying? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. But this is just beautiful. And they went off to play, and as I, as I thought about that, I thought, you know what? This is exactly the way we want things to be, isn't it? If we're writing the story, we could not write a better storyline than that. And as I think about that story, I think that's really a great metaphor for life. Because see, no matter where you come from in terms of your belief, what kind of convictions you carry, whether you're here as a Christian or you're here as a skeptic or just curious, we can all agree that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We look around and see all kinds of pain and suffering. Our world is bent. It is broken. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And there's a number of proposals that people make. Some people say we need more education or we just need to get the right politicians elected. Then things will be all right. Well, at the heart of Christianity is this notion that this world is broken and it has fallen and there is much pain and things are not the way they are supposed to be. Christianity is not a stick your head in the sand and pretend like things are all right kind of faith. It is a faith that embraces brokenness and what is wrong with this world. And doesn't stay paralyzed, but moves in to action. I want us to look this morning, really at a number of places. I'm going to give you what I'm going to try to do. You probably think this is impossible. To give you about a, a, a bird's eye view of the entire scripture in less than 30 minutes, okay? Are you convinced? <laughs> I want us to start with Genesis chapter 12. The context here, if you're reading the book of Genesis from the first chapter, you know, God created this world, uh, uh, paradise, no doubt. And, and with our first parents, Adam and Eve, turning their back upon God, this world was plunged into chaos. Things from the get-go with that fall started to unravel. Adam and Eve turned on one another. One of their children committed murder. And, and you just see things going sideways. Well, God comes and he sets up in Genesis chapter 3 this promise that one day he would send a redeemer who would undo this mess of this world. And here in Genesis chapter 12, I want you to see, in essence, the first act, the first place where God really sets in motion this plan. And this is the calling of a man named Abram. So this is the word of God. Let's give our attention to it. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we give great thanks for this morning and the ability to come here together and to sit at your feet and listen to your word. 
Lord, some of us are here this morning and we are very excited with the sense of nearness that we have of you and your work in our lives. And others are here perhaps just trying to figure out which way is right side up. Lord, all of us are coming from different perspectives. We ask that you would come and meet us this morning. We are all in need of your grace. We are all in need of a glimpse of you this morning. So would you show yourself strong? Would you, would you show us in the scripture your great plan for how you set things right? And we ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, I want to convince you this morning of a very simple truth. And that is this. Since God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things, then we ought to invest our lives in advancing His kingdom, whether that's across the street or around the world. Here in this passage of Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram, a person who was a worshiper of foreign deities, and He calls him to follow Him. And, and Abram doesn't know what this is all about. But somehow God comes and in the proclamation of his word to him, convinces Abram to follow him. And, and to no credit of his own, God just comes right out and makes this astonishing promise. I mean, put yourself in his place. God comes to you and says to you, I will make you into a great nation. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of this world will be blessed. Now, what do you do with a promise like that? Here, God is setting into motion a promise of how he is going to, in essence, change this world. How he's going to transform this world. How he's going to take things from a state where they are not the way they're supposed to be and move them to a state where they're supposed to be exactly like they're designed to be. The way we intuitively want it. And here he sets this into motion. And he calls a strange man. And as, as the progress of revelation in the scriptures progresses, we see how God's plan uh, becomes larger and larger. He calls Abram. His descendants are grown in Egypt under the oppression of the Pharaoh. God rescues them and delivers them and forms them into a nation. And he gives this nation called Israel this promise that they are to be a light to the Gentiles. And he desires to use them. If they will claim his promises, this promise here of Abraham's blessing will be realized through them. They will be the great nation by which God sets this world to rights. I want you to turn with me over to Psalm chapter 2. We see a great promise unfolded here. This is called a coronation psalm. And this is one of the psalms uh, when a new king of Israel would rise to the throne. All of Israel would sing this song. And it has God making some incredible promises to the king of Israel. I want you to listen to this. We're going to start at verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. But here is, is a song that was sung in the corporate worship of God's people when a new king would arise to the throne. It says this in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the king, and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All right, here's the picture. A new king arises to the throne. Israel's singing this song and they're recognizing in the very proclamation of their song that things are not the way they're supposed to be. 
The nations are in rebellion against their creator. And God has anointed his king in Israel to be a channel through which blessings flow to these nations. But they don't want it. They want to tear off the bonds here. And so it goes on, it says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Here's the promise. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, you're following what's going on here? God is saying to the king of Israel, just ask me. Ask me for the ends of the earth and I will give them to you. Ask me for the nations of this world and I will give them to you. So the blessings of my kingdom will spill out all over the world. You can be the the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham of blessing all the families of this earth. And the king simply had to ask this and act on it in faith. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, or maybe you're not, and you're trying to understand the message of Christianity, one of the things that you you must know is this. Israel failed miserably. There was no king that made a good claim on this promise. The closest, perhaps, was King Solomon who had kings and queens coming to him, seeking out his wisdom and paying him in gold and bringing gifts to him. And the blessings of Israel fell over its borders a little bit there. But from the time of Solomon, it just became worse and worse. And here is the people who are supposed to be the bearers of the good news, the the, the holders of the kingdom to spread it over the face of this world. And the people through whom the promise was to be fulfilled themselves became part of the problem. In fact, the rest of the the Old Testament chronicles for us how God's people just fell and fell and fell to the point where the prophets say, you have become worse than the nations. You who are supposed to be a light to this world, who are supposed to heal this world, who are supposed to advance God's kingdom, have yourselves become the essence of the problem. So what do we do now? Here's the promise God has given, that he's going to set this world right. And all the kings of Israel are failing. I guess I should say all the kings except for one. A number of years later, a young man was born in whom the fulfillment of the promises were to be realized. A man through whom it could be said, this is true Israel, this is the king coming. As I was teaching my Aggies this last week from Luke chapter 7, uh, one of the things I showed them was Jesus comes and he's, he's spilling out the kingdom all over the place where he goes. In fact, the, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ, uh, was faced with a crisis of doubt. And he sent his, his followers to Jesus and said, Are you the one that we are to be expecting? Are you the one through whom the promises are going to come? Or is there someone else? And the, the people arrived right when Jesus was performing miracles and healing all kinds of diseases. And you know what Jesus said to them? Go back and tell John this. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the prisoners who have no hope are having the gospel preached to them. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, go back and tell John that the curse of this world is being reversed through me. 
The way things are supposed to be are happening as I go about exercising my sovereign sway on this earth. And in Jesus, for the first time, the blessings of God are spilling out on this world. And Christ is setting things to right. But one of the things he had to do was to go through death. And this was something even his disciples couldn't understand. But Christ went to the cross. As you have heard preached to you numerous times. And there God piled up all the sins of the world upon him. And he bore the curse of God for everything that is wrong with this world. And he was laid in a tomb. And as we celebrated last week, he rose again. Death could not hold its power over him. And Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God. But before he did that, he made another incredible promise or statement. Turn over to Matthew 28. Many of us know this as the Great Commission. Jesus is here now raised from the dead. He's giving some last words to his disciples. And it's interesting what Matthew records for us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Let's start at verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when, he saw, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Say that your pastor got up one Sunday morning and said those words. I want you all to know that all authority and power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, if he said that, I hope there would be a mass exodus from this church. It would be time to lock him up. But here is Jesus making an astounding claim. And if our, our ears are, turn, are tuned to the Old Testament, we would understand exactly what he is saying. He's saying the promises of God have been realized in me. All this authority and power that has been promised to the kings of Israel have been give, has been given to me. And listen to what he says next. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples of all nations. Here Christ is commissioning his apostles and through his apostles, us as well, to go out and claim the nations for Jesus Christ. What is he doing here? He's making good on the promise that was given to the king of Israel in Psalm chapter 2 when God says, ask of me and I will give you the nations. Jesus himself claims the nations and he commissions his church to go out and bring the nations to him to preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, of free grace before the throne of God. It's interesting, over in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends to the throne of heaven, he, he says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here he is once again using this language of the Old Testament and telling his church to go out to the ends of the earth. What Jesus is saying, and it's an audacious claim, is that through me, what is wrong with this world will be set right. Preach the gospel. Heal the sick. Declare hope for the prisoners. 
and through my ministry, through you, this world finds healing. One other passage I want to have you look at. Romans chapter 10. It's right after the Gospels and right after the book of Acts in the New Testament. Romans chapter 10. Here Paul, the apostle, has been describing how the whole world has been bound to sin. The, the Gentile world as well as the, the Jewish world, the, the ones that God had called, they are all a part of the problem. And he talks about how Christ himself has undone this problem through his work on the cross. And now it comes to this passage, and he has some very amazing things to say. Chapter 10, verse 9. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you will be brought under his, his sovereign sway. You will, you'll be made right with him. You'll be rightly connected to your creator for the first time. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. My friends, you may be here this morning trying to figure out what Christianity is about. And I want to tell you, it's very hard. It's about God reconciling people to himself. Declaring peace where there was war. Offering forgiveness of sins. Offering to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Offering to be seen as absolutely irresistible in His sight because of what Christ has done for us. He is offering that to you here this morning. And all you have to do is embrace that. To receive that. To believe that. What the Bible here calls faith. Now what is interesting, Paul goes on here and he says this. Some great words. But how are they to call on Him? Verse 14. How are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all believed. For the Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's what I want you to see this morning, my friends. Christ has done the work of reconciling the world to God. And the way that work goes forward now is through you and I speaking words. It comes about through you and I talking about what Christ has done on the cross to reconcile this world to its creator. And he raises the question here, how are people going to be reconciled unless they hear this message? And how is this message going to be heard unless someone opens their mouth and says it. And so my friends, what I want to give you a glimpse of this morning is that God desires to use you in the healing of this world. He desires to use you to see people reconciled to God through Christ. And He desires to use you and the air He puts in your lungs and the vibrations He causes to come out of your mouth as you speak words of peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you a few points of application here as we wind things up. The first one is this. I want you to let your imagination run wild about the coming of Christ's kingdom. Now, in order to do this, you and I have to 
have a, a healthy imagination of what this world would be like if things were set right, if things were the way they're supposed to be. What would that look like? It would look like people loving one another. It would look like people sacrificing for one another. Instead of putting ourselves first, we would be putting other folks first in our lives. You see, what God has done in sending forth His kingdom of the world is He's reversing this, this impulse within us towards self-centeredness. You know the story of Narcissus, don't you? Narcissus was a young man. This comes to us from the ancient Greek mythology. He was a young man who one day bent over a pool to gather some water to drink. And he was so captured by his own image. He was so absorbed in what he saw looking back at him that he could not be pulled away. He, he, he stayed there gazing upon his own image. And neither thirst nor hunger nor anything else could drive him away. And as the story tells us, he wilted away right there on the spot. You know, from that word, uh, from that story, we get the word narcissism. Narcissism is a view of reality that everything circles around me. This universe revolves around me. I think about myself. I'm interested in myself. And, and we use the word narcissism to describe that view of reality. Now, what God has done as He has set at work the gospel of Christ and His kingdom to go against this impulse. See, you, you may be hearing, you're, you're hearing words like sin and these things like that, and it's not clicking for you. The Bible uses this word sin to talk about this impulse within us to look after ourselves. Listen to what one commentator said. He said, like salvation, sin is a word that belongs to the traditional Christian vocabulary. I am not a sinner, people often say, because they seem to be associating sin with specific and rather sensational misdeeds like murder, adultery, and theft. Yeah, we all say those are wrong. But sin has a much wider connotation than that. Listen to what he says. What the Bible means by sin is primarily self-centeredness. For God's two great commandments are first that we love Him with all our being and secondly that we love our neighbor as ourself. Sin then, he says, is the reversal of this order. It is to put ourselves first, our neighbor next when it suits our convenience, and God somewhere in the background. You see what he says there? He says if we understand what the Scriptures are teaching us about the heart of what sin is, it is narcissism. It is being in love with ourselves more than anything else. And what the kingdom of God does through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is it takes people like you and like me who are fundamentally self-centered at our core and it begins to turn us inside out, so to speak. It causes us to take these hearts that beat for ourselves and ourselves alone and causes us to start loving other people. And that, that love towards others flows out of this overwhelming sense of the love that we have for God, uh, the love He has for us, and our responsive love back to Him. It begins to transform the way we think so that we find ourselves now in a holy war against selfishness and against narcissism. And so when I call you to let your imagination run wild with the way things are supposed to be, with the arrival of God's kingdom, what would it look like, my friends, for Christ's kingdom to be arriving right here in your town? What would it look like for this church to be a, a foretaste of the way things are supposed to be when God sets them right? I think that's exactly what the calling of this church is. To be a mission, to be a, a lighthouse, to be a sign of what it will look like 
when Christ's kingdom is here in its fullness. That day is coming. And this is supposed to be a foretaste of what that is like. So what would that be like? We could spend hours talking about that. But we must pray for it. Do you know, do you really believe that God delights in saving sinners? Do you believe that at the very core of God's heart is this desire to set things right? And He's willing to do anything for that. He gave His Son to die for that. And so if it is God's desire to see His kingdom flourish in this world, to see this world whole, then what does that mean for us? I think if we're to hear Scripture, it means we simply ought to ask God for it. And He is delighted to give it. I want to tell you a story. Uh, I'm going to go down this summer, uh, hopefully long term, to work with some folks uh, at a group called Peru Mission. There's a group of pastors who have gone down uh, to, to advance God's kingdom down in northern Peru. And this is a great story. You've got to hear this. The town is set up in this style where uh, it has a piece of land sitting in the middle of a neighborhood in which, according to the, the thinking of the city, they want a church to come here. So you have all these pieces of land sitting all over the place that no one's using. And a couple of my friends who are missionaries down there right now came up with this crazy idea to ask God for that land. Let's, let's ask Him for it. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. Let's ask Him to give us this piece of land. So they prayed about it and they hired an architect and came up with some designs for it. And, and one of the amazing things was they, they went to the mayor over this district. There's eight mayors over this town of Trujillo, a town of a million. They went and spoke with him, showed him the plans, and they said, you have this piece of land sitting here vacant. The city wants a church here. Would you give us this church and we will build a church here? Or Would you give us this land and we'll build a church here? And the mayor thought about it for a moment. He says, you know what? I will give you this piece of land. And in my district, I have 14 or 15 other pieces of land just like it. Do you want those as well? And, you know, and their mouth hits the floor and they can't believe what's going on. And so I said, yes, of course, we'll take this. And so, what is interesting, that mayor ran his re-election campaign. And he said, you know what? I brought these Americans down to Peru to build these churches in my neighborhood. And it was a complete lie, but great political capital, right? And one of the interesting things is some of the other mayors in this part of town, or in, in this town of Trujillo, heard what is going on in this man's district and the good political capital that it won for him. And so now they're calling these guys at Peru Mission and saying, we have land in our neighborhood as well. Would you come build churches here? They simply ask God to give them one piece of land. And they have now more land than is possible to build churches on in any foreseeable future. God is doing some amazing things there. And hopefully uh, we're going to go down, my family and I, uh, to help set up campus ministry in this town. Uh, 40,000 students where there's no campus ministry going on as well. And we have great hopes for God turning the world upside down there. If he's giving land here, uh, and, and it's his delight to do so, to see churches established and outposts of heaven um, maintained there in that city. What is his desire for the campus? I'm not sure exactly. But we're asking him to give us these campuses, and we'll see what he does with that. We're going to get your campus minister here, Pete Hatton, to come down and bring a bunch of you with him when he comes. Let your imagination run wild with the thought of the coming of Christ's kingdom. Secondly, I want to encourage you in this way. I stole this phrase. You'll recognize it. Think globally and act locally. 
to imagine what Christ's kingdom would be like if it came into this world and made everything right. And if we were to pray for that and to work for it, how do we go about that? I want you to have a worldwide vision while at the same time being engaged in the mission here in this town in which you live. Let me put it like this. Sometimes we, we talk about missionaries as just people who go to other parts of the world. And a lot of times the way we talk about missionaries in Christian circles is not healthy, I think, because it excludes us. We think there's people who are professionals and they do that, but I'm not that way. Well, I think the scriptures teach that all believers are to be engaged in this mission. So in a very real sense, all believers are to be missionaries. They're to be proclaimers of God's grace. Spurgeon, the great Baptist minister, put it like this. Every Christian is a missionary or he is an imposter. I like that because it cuts to the heart. Part of our very identity in coming into Christ's kingdom and believing in Christ is not just so that we can enjoy the blessings ourselves, but so that we can now be used to spread those blessings throughout this world. God desires to use you just like He desired to use Abraham and the kings of Israel to spread His blessings around this world. My friends, the short of it is this. The mission field is wherever God has placed you. The mission field is wherever God has placed you. Wherever Christ plants His church... He is proclaiming that community for Himself. That's why I'm so excited about what God is doing here through you. He has called you together in this town and has brought you together as His church. And He means to use you to spill out your blessings to this community. He means to use you to be a light to this community. Let me ask you this question. Where do you live and where do you work? It's no accident that you live on the street that you live in. It's no accident that you have the job that you have. It's no accident that you uh, have the neighbors that you have. God has placed you, if you're a believer, He has placed you there to be a light to your community, to be a light to your workplace. And He desires to use you. And the proclamation of Christ in this great process of healing the world through Him. One last thing. We'll close. I want to call you to adopt a wartime mindset until every person has heard the gospel. Adopt a wartime mindset until every person has heard the gospel. I began reading a couple of years ago, to the influence of Pete Hatton, uh, books on World War II. And it's become somewhat of a hobby of mine. And one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is that when, when the church, or when the church, when the, this country was engaged in, in World War II, the, the amount of sacrifice that went on. And people talked about driving at the victory speed of 35 miles an hour in order to conserve gas. Uh, People were buying war bonds. They were making sacrifices and medals. Everyone had a part to play. And every American, if they were an American, were called to sacrifice in order to see the success of this world war uh, going on. They were called to sacrifice to help America. I found that very interesting. I thought about that as I was reflecting on the words that uh, Ralph Winter wrote. Ralph Winter was the founder of the U.S. Center of World Missions in Pasadena, California. And he wrote an article called Reconsecration to a Wartime, Not a Peacetime Lifestyle. And in that article, he said that $2 per month is more than 90% of all Americans give 
to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. $2 is more than 90% of Christians in America give to see the gospel flourish. My friends, I, I fear that one of the, the great seducing ideas of this world is that you and I are to see ourselves primarily as consumers. Primarily as individualistic consumers. That is, the blessings that come into our life are to be used for myself to enjoy. And that is not at all the case. God gives great blessings. And yes, you are to enjoy them as you go along. But you're not to hoard them. You are to invest them. You are to use them for the advancement of His kingdom. How can we have this vision for the way that things are supposed to be and be blessed like we are and yet care so less about sacrificing to see it come? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, join me in suffering for the gospel. My friends, what would it look like for you to suffer for the gospel? I'm not saying that what that means is that you have to go to a foreign country and live there. Most of you, if not all of you, are called to live right here in this town. What are you doing to sacrifice for the gospel? God's great design for this world is to set everything right and it will finally be accomplished when Jesus Christ comes back. But we have the foretaste of that in His ministry, in His death, in His resurrection. And now through the ministry of His church as it goes about healing this world, through the preaching of the gospel... How are you engaged in that? My friends, God delights in saving sinners. And God delights in using you to be a part of the great work that He was doing. Do you believe that? Let me encourage you to hold on to that with everything you've got. Let's pray. Oh Lord in heaven, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together uh, trying, attempting to take a bird's eye view of the great plan that you have of redeeming this world. Lord, sometimes when we look around and we see the brokenness and the hurt, sometimes it's, it's more than we can bear. No doubt there are many people here this morning who feel it very acutely. And sometimes that seems to us more real than the promises which you have made. Lord, we pray that you would use this time together this morning in the ministry of your word, through the ministry of your sacraments, to believe the great promises that you have revealed. You have not left this world to spin off on its own, but you have entered it in a very unexpected way through the person of Jesus Christ. How we thank you for him. How we thank you for his life, for his example, for his sacrifice. And how we thank you that he is now the resurrected Lord of the universe who has given us the Spirit as a down payment and the anticipation for the way that things will be set right. Lord, help us to hang on to that hope. Help us to believe that you really want to use us. Whether it's across the street or around the world, would you fulfill your purposes through us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.